dispensing wisdom, inciting awesomeness, scaling joy. Welcome to the Mojo Studios podcast, serving up bite-sized doses of delicious and nutritious insight and inspiration intended to ignite your mojo within and add fuel to the fire of your life, your relationships, your work, and your contribution to the world. It's time to turn down the deluge of distractions and put yourself in a mindset of receptivity and growth. Absorb, digest, apply, repeat, dinner is served. All right, we are live. Hey, this is Mojo, Joe McCarthy, with uh, one of my newest friends, Michael H. Ballard of Resiliency for Life. Say hello, Michael. Hello. It's great to have you here. So the connection is really interesting to me, how some people would call it serendipity, and I'm learning to call this synchronicity, that life sometimes lines up the way it's supposed to, right? Not always, but sometimes it does, and maybe yep. it always does, and you just don't see it that way. My friend, Russ Hansen, is a part of Michael's Facebook group called Resiliency for Life. And some of my friends would know Russ Hansen. He's been through quite a trauma himself uh, and has come up very strong on the other side. So Russ told me, hey, Joe, you gotta check out this Facebook page, Resiliency for Life. And I did, and I loved it. And I started just throwing in my posts from time to time. Thank and you. Michael says, hey, I love what you're doing here. I'd love to connect with you. And so this was just, just a few days ago. So I said to Michael, hey, Want to go on my podcast? He's yes, absolutely. <laughs> so here we are. Hey, Michael, tell us a little bit about um, what even got you into Resiliency for Life. Tell us a little bit what it is, and then how did sure. you get into it? Resiliency has two major components. What's going on in here and here, and what's going on around you. And so resiliency is a beliefs and values and skill set to help us deal with life's big stuff issues. And to be clear, what's big for you could be easy for me and what's tough for me could be easy for you so there's no judgment with resiliency you can't judge yourself you can be mystified but don't judge don't be harsh so resiliency comes down to do you have the issue or does the issue own you and for a few seconds minutes or even a few hours depending on the size of the issue either one is very acceptable but resiliency said throw off the issue owning you you own the issue So, for example, when I got my cancer diagnosis the first time around, scared out of my mind, and then after 20 minutes of crying in the parking lot sitting in my car, it was like, all right, to misquote a famous singer, shake it off, shake it (laughs) off. I swear she stole my best line. It was like, okay, your parents have talked to you about life's big stuff moments in many ways. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to ask for help. Oh, wait, I've already started. I got a, a famous surgeon on the east coast of Canada who's been out of the continent because he's learned something over in Europe that they don't do in North America. So his surgical techniques are world-class. Woo! I'm underway. Oh, he's in a university hospital where we're going to have students as well as the doctor. So it's like free opinions. Maybe they're not as informed as his because he's been around for 12 years. But on the other hand, I'm going to be in a learning situation where I'm going to engage with medical students, which is to me awesome. Not everybody likes that, but I appreciate it because it gives your life a little more meaning that this old bod was having 12 medical students once a week at least sit in on grand rounds asking me and the doctor questions. And so I got to learn a little more about myself. So that got me started. But I got really interested in you and me and being different. At six or seven, I had a concussion. 
And within a day, I had a roommate. Now, with my concussion, my eyes hurt, my ears hurt. There was a ringing. The headache was profound. It was like there was a brass drum in my head with every heartbeat. But my roommate, he stood up, yelled, screamed, and shouted, where was his father? Where were his grandparents? Where was Bubba? Where was... And I'm like, could you tone it down, buddy? Like, how can you have a concussion and yell so loud? And, of course, as an adult, I found out our two responses were both exactly what they could be. With a head trauma, head injury, some of us get real quiet because, boy, does it hurt. And some of us get really agitated. (laughs) This was the 60s. There was no flights home for daddy on business every hour on the hour like we have before the pandemic. It was you booked three days in advance. Maybe you could get a flight. And both sets of grandparents were in the U.S. It was, I think, May time. My vegetable garden had just been planted, and uh, grandparents had driven down to visit other relatives, one in Florida, set in Florida, one in Arizona. He wasn't going to have any other people other than his mother for a good day and a half, and he was angry. So that got me at six or seven really fascinated that two people, almost identical issue, major difference in response. Before we move on beyond this incident, tell, tell the story of, of the concussion. What exactly happened? How old were you? What was the oh. circumstance? Well, it took me two years to learn how to ride a bike, two summers, because at six or seven, physical skills were very uh, limited. So my dad taught me, you know, steering, pedaling, balance, safety. But as I love to tease the little kids I live near, I'm so old, bicycle helmets hadn't been invented yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I was pedaling on my gravel road, and the little four-year-old saw me. I nodded. She nodded. And as I got close... She turned the other way and ran in front of me. And we're talking, I missed her by about a foot. I managed to steer around her. I'm very proud of that accomplishment. But then I went down the ditch and hit the only rock in the ditch. Because as soon as I hit the bottom of the ditch, it was muddy and wet. And I stopped like instantly. And I went over the handles in slow motion because I wasn't going that fast. But you hit dirt, you hit mud, your wheels sink in, you stop. Say, as my dad likes to say, it's not the fall that hurts you, Joe. It's the sudden stop at the bottom. Very wise. Yes, absolutely. And it was a sudden stop. Let's take take me back to when you were six and you're in the hospital Uh, and uh, you have this concussion. So what was going through your mind and and how did you respond to this? And what did you learn in that process? Well, what was really fascinating as a kid was a game. My roommate was yelling, screaming and shouting. And I was quite amazed. And I asked for them to move him. And they went, this isn't the hotel. So my parents showed up, and my mom and dad are very polite and very, very gentle around experts, but they went, okay, he's put up with this young man for two days. This young man had been put in a giant stainless steel crib because he kept getting out of his bed and going to the nurse's station, yelling the whole way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think my son deserves some quiet to help with his healing. Mm -hmm. So I suddenly had a private room. Not something I think my parents paid for because 1961, not a lot of private rooms, but I got peace and quiet. So, again, two people, almost identical issues and total polar opposite responses. And I just remember that my eyes hurt, my ears hurt. Could everybody whisper and could I have an aspirin? (laughs) And you were aware, even at that age, that. You had the same injury as this other guy, but totally, totally different response. Is that right? Yeah, that, that fascinated me to no end. And my mother was like, well, he's having his own reaction his way. And I'm like, to myself, in my thinking was like, well, yeah, that's bloody stupid. You got a headache. You'd scream with a headache? Like, really? 
But again, right. as I said, yeah. as an adult, I discovered that head injuries, we were both being very typical of head injuries, one at the quiet end and one at the loud end. It yeah. really got me to think, like, wow, how different and how friggin' annoying. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. No, in many ways, that observation, even at that young age, of the same injury, different response, different people handling different ways, that really was the kernel, right? That was the seed that was planted. Absolutely. And so that got me thinking. And then uh, fast forward 10, 11 years, I got a chronic illness diagnosis. And I remember the doctor saying, your family has no medical history of this at all. Your parents, your uncles and aunties, your cousins, your grandparents. This is a bit of a mystery. And by then, I was blessed that I'd taken, I'd taken my uh, Shaolin martial arts. And a new university had been built less than 40 minutes from my house with a large library. So my family's big on, so what do the experts say? Yeah. And what have you found out? And what have you found out anecdotally? Have you found anybody else with this issue? So listen to the experts. Don't do anything foolish that could make it worse. But what can you do? Because the expert with good intention, my gastroenterologist, had done the 1970s thing of there's nothing you can do, Michael. And, of course, I went to the new university called York University, for those that know Toronto or Ontario. And the one of the librarians said, what are you here for? I just want to see if there's any articles about managing chronic illness. Oh, said the librarian, there's new research from Harvard out. Off I go. Dewey Decimal System. The yeah. old days, no, no Mr. Google then. I'm not a member of the university. I'm a high school student from up the road. So power read the observations. Oh. Go to my local library in my hometown. Luckily, they are interconnected, so they could borrow other books. And within a year of me finding that research, there was a best-selling book, Minding the Body. Mending the mind. Mm. So it was about brain training, skills, beliefs, and values, and the impact it had. And darned if it didn't align with what I'd learned in Shaolin Kung Fu, which was like, okay, now I got no excuses. I spent three, four years, four nights a week taking martial arts. Physically, I got to orange. But mentally, my, my instructor in the dojo, Lauren, was quite remarkable. And the skills he taught for breathing, calmness, Having him challenge me, not threaten me, but challenge me. Michael, this police officer said, you scare him because you're physically much faster than him. Now, Lorne was 29, I was 13, 14. The officer was in his 30s. You know, when you're 14, 35 is so old. The poor guy almost needed <laughs> a cane and a walker. So we did sparring, play fighting for the uninformed, where I'm not allowed to hit you. I'm supposed to, if I throw a punch, I'm supposed to touch you. Just to let you know that I could have broken your nose. Right. Or if you can throw a good kick back in the day, just to let you know that, oh, yeah, I could have knocked you down, maybe unconscious. Right. So I'm thinking, but this guy's six foot four. This man's a Golden Glove boxing championship. And as a teenager and in his late 20s, he's a Golden Glove boxing championship in a new weight category. What do I stand a chance at? And, oh, he's so tall that his arms are three inches longer than me and his legs are four inches longer than, like, I'm toast. Yeah. My instructor said, Michael, why are you judging him against you? And he said he's seen you chatter and make people laugh when they're supposed to be sparring. And he's worried you're going to break concentration. Because I'd say things in the dojo like, oh, I see your mother did your toenails. <laughs> hey, I got to use every advantage I can. That's so right. I can't be distracted so you can whack them. I'll right. you with mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfect. And so I got to beat him once or twice in the point system. 
And yeah. he won a couple too, but my instructor was like, Michael, this is powerful in you differently than him. He got a different body than you, but quit judging that you're beat before you start. Yeah, so it was wow. really a good lesson that yeah. do you have the issue or does the issue have you? And he was like, you own the issue. Don't you dare. So with my diagnosis for chronic illness, it was like, I'm going to own the issue. And I found the Harvard research. I don't expect medical specialists to be mental health specialists. But by then, the research was showing if you did certain things mentally and emotionally, you could have 20% less symptoms. That's profound. A couple of things you've said here that are they're kind of universal principles that I, I, I don't want people to miss. It's not just your story. It's our story, no. right? Yes. So one, one is that you get into martial arts and you learn that there's there's the mind part of the fighting and then there's the body part of the fighting. And as you said, you, you had the superior intellect, but the body wasn't hanging in there, right? It's an integrated approach, rational, yeah. emotional, physical. Yep. Yeah. So then when you look in this Harvard uh, new literature about your medical condition, you're seeing some of the same truth. So it's wisdom or it's truth or whatever you want to call it in, in a big universal sense. And you recognize you get that from both sides. Yeah. And then the other the other point I wanted to make is that um, in your play fighting in the dojo, this guy's taller, older, bigger, longer, stronger, all these things, right? But I love what you said. You said in your mind, you were, you were already toast before you ever started. But yeah. it turns out, turns out that's not the case. You just thought you were toast before you started. So really, and the that battle... had business implications later. Yeah, yeah. I got hired as the first non-master's degree business consultant for a large package goods firm. And I went on to beat 80% of them in the marketplace because I didn't have an MBA, and that's okay. I had five semesters of college. It was a four-semester course. I took an extra, extra semester. And what I had that they didn't have was I had social-emotional skills. So I had 100% loyalty, and I would yeah. come in and say, head office is introducing this. You already do this. I'm going to share everything because I, I'm obligated to. But that doesn't mean you have to do it. So I'm going to tell you the truth from the company. I'm going to give you my perspective. You're really smart. Let's hash out what will help you make more money. Yeah. I, and it wow. was amazing. And the other and 80% just showed up and parroted. They were not really engaging anybody. And so I threw out the model I was trained in. And again, go back to the Shaolin Kung Fu, the Harvard business. It was about emotional, not Harvard business, Harvard mind body. It was about emotional intelligence, social intelligence, calming this so you could focus because I'm easily excitable. I want to keep going, but again, I want to just highlight some of these really great principles that are coming out. And one is you get into this business, you weren't as qualified as the others, you had a different kind of education, but rather than feeling like I don't have a chance, you're thinking I have an advantage. That's a big difference in your mind, right? Yes, because so, the chronic illness taught me that, yes. and, the, and the dojo taught me that just because you don't have the same doesn't mean you're not equal. So I have the, my phrase, my favorite phrase now is you and I are different, but equal. Yeah. Skills and experience, education, all wonderful. But uh, work ethic and social-emotional skills can toast a lot of others in a hurry. Big time. Yeah, I was just talking to my friend uh, Michael Leckie about transformation in organizations. And one of the illustrations he gave was he went into an organization and they were having a hard time coming up with creativity and innovation within their organization. So he put them on an assignment and they went down to a kindergarten down the street. They observed and they came back with all these great ideas how to make the kindergarten better. And they were brilliant, just fabulous ideas. And then the exercise is over and Michael says, okay, now let's do the same thing with your organization. And they got nothing. They can't think outside of what they've already been trained to think in their yeah. organization. So they had to bring in outside consultants and pay them lots of money 
people who knew nothing about their organization so that they could think freely, they could play really was the answer. They yeah. could play with their ideas and not be afraid that, oh, it doesn't fit within the paradigm. And that's really what emotional intelligence is, right? It's compassion, yeah. it's empathy, and it's the ability to say there are rules and they're there for a reason, but that isn't all there is. No. And so I'm a big fan of some books and devices from the 80s. So there was six thinking hats, six ways to approach every issue. Love it, love it, love it. I still buy copies used off the net and give them away to the teenagers in my life saying, hey, you're really smart. You're inheriting the world that's just as bent as the one I inherited, but it's bent in a new way compared to when I inherited it. So here's a way to get right. collaboration and cooperation from those that you're going to work with and volunteer with, etc. Here's six action shoes, how to implement six thinking hats. And then if they're master's degree and higher, I like to introduce them to uh, a kick in the seat of the pants and a whack in the side of the head books. Yeah. Now, those titles are politically incorrect these days, but in the 80s, they were like, yes, yes. Right. Again, because it's all about disrupting your current thinking because we do get tunnel vision. We get comfortable and it's hard to break down the side doors and, the, and break out. I've often said that we, we tend to limit ourselves to like two options, either or. Yes, no, black, white, left, right. Well, that's not all the options that are out there, right? No. So I've, I've been trying to encourage people to say, what if there's a third option? You know, it's somewhere in the middle. And you're saying what I love you just said is there might be six options. There might be an infinite number of options, right? So why limit ourselves to just two? I worked for a giant packaged goods company at one point with 30,000 staff approximately in North America, and they'd been doing ordering. This is when mainframes were still in charge. And I remember saying to them, so you having us in today's dollars managing five to $25 million each of 80 of us, but you're getting us to add these orders up after we've taken them, and we never deliver more than 97.3% of the order. So why are we doing things to the penny? You're asking me to do grade six to grade 12 math at most when I should be out consulting, selling, managing, looking for new business, client relationships, because for six to eight weeks of the year, you want me to stay at home and do all this math. Right. It's really important and I get it, but wouldn't it be better if we just did it to the thousand dollar mark and then sent it in? Yeah, they ended up hiring cool. 25 people with grade, with grade 12 math skills to do all our math and it took 120 hours it put it back into my schedule. And okay. so then I was able to go out and sell more. And people were like, I hated it. And somebody said, how did it happen? And they said, Ballard sent a letter to the board. Everybody was going to stay with the status quo. And it's like, no, I'm good with business math, but it's boring. Yeah. Another application of this is metrics, right? So my, my friend Michaels, who's a organizational consultant, he says, Un unfortunately, we measure progress or output or whatever with metrics that were designed for the dark ages. And everything has changed. Digital the digital world has changed the speed of business. It's changed the measurements, but we haven't updated our metrics to yes. follow suit. So we're measuring yeah. today's business on yesterday's models and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't help. It doesn't change anything. And like you said, you're using some of your top dollar people who you're paying the biggest salaries and the most benefits to, to do high school math. When you could hire a math student to do that and send them out to do strategy and your tactics and all that kind of stuff. It really pays off. I remember the business model I was given was I was supposed to consult with you, the, the retail store owner of five stores. And I remember I, have, I had the president of a pharmacy association for Eastern Canada as one of my clients. Smart, smart, smart. And one day in my last couple of calls, because I'd been transferred, his assistant store manager said, your approach and, my, and the owner's approach to people are similar. When I started here 12 years ago, 
after a year, he pulled me aside and took me to supper. And he said, he basically, you're not that special. My cashier is more important than my bottom line than you'll ever be because she greets them on the way in. She thanks them on the way out. You're just dispensing pills when you're really busy. When you're not real busy, you're not bad. So he said, he told me that if I was to keep my employment, I had to do the following things and read the following books and go to the following courses. Oh, my brain hurt. And in today's <laughs> words, we would say his social emotional intelligence was low. Yeah. I got a sense that he was very IQ smart for as a pharmacist. Sure. And he'd taken advanced courses to work towards being a, pharma, a pharmacologist mm-hmm. where you actually design medication. Then he decided that it wasn't him. So he was smart. But his people skills, oh, my gosh, the first time I met him at the, 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 my, in my first year with him, he was just in the middle of his learning curve that the owner had put him. Because of his social skills, the, far, the owner, and then helping this young guy get it, his profits per square foot were way above average, like, like 19% above average when I started. And we worked hard, and we got him up over 25% average in a tiny store yeah. with a lot, a lot of space. So he was, to use a, a corny phrase from my boxing friend, punching above his weight doesn't have to be perfect it doesn't have to be perfectly pretty it just it works it just works right the staff loved him and the the pharmacist that was going to buy him out eventually over time they started to love him too because the lady i work with in the store she said i remember when he started airing a little twit i was ready to pop him one i wouldn't but i was ready <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's right absolutely resiliency to me is about that mental flexibility Let's tie this back to your personal story, right? So we've heard that you had a, a trauma in, when you're in your young childhood, six years old, concussion. And then you had a second one. You said you were 17. Is that right? 17 with a chronic illness. And then at 27, I had the cancer diagnosis. And that was so, the big, big one. I'd been promoted. I'd been in Toronto and I was in charge of opening new stores and renovating stores. So that was, I did 50 odd stores in a year. That's a lot of mileage. And then <laughs> I got I got into what I went to school for. I got into sales. So because I was the first one that didn't have an advanced degree or a degree at all, but I was in the college system in Canada, uh, I was a test. So they got me into sales because I was new and they weren't sure how good I was. And that's okay. It's nice to be trusted. They assigned me a mentor and a trainer four days a week for six weeks. Talk about being treated like royalty. I was with him six days, six or four days a week, six to 10 hours a day, depending on where we were. And for the first week, I followed him around. He told me what he was going to do before he went in. He'd give me suggestions on what the conversation could be. Then he executed on the way out. What did he miss? What did he do? All I was to do is say hello and goodbye. And the second week, you're going to plan the call. I'll follow through. And by the third week, you plan it, you do it, execute, and I'll give you follow-up. And by the sixth week, there was days where he stayed in the car. And I came out and had to tell him how it went. It was amazing. I just have the highest regard that he put up with this high energy guy who was, uh, to quote one of my friend's friends, a pack of the nerves. (laughs) (laughs) That that mentoring, that training that you just talked about, that's an incredible model, but it had to be one of the most life-changing experiences in your career. Is that right? I got six weeks at least with this really smart, highly accomplished professional who'd already had three levels of sales and he changed continents because he felt that Canada offered his spouse and kids more security for the future Hmm. because the country he came from was going the wrong direction he (laughs) was brilliant he went on to uh, be a a sales manager a national account manager then a sales manager and then he retired early from corporate and owned his own stores in the card and gift industry how old were you when you went through this training with this guy 
I was 24, 26. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And, and I just want, don't want people to miss this model too, that here's a guy who had, who could do it all himself, right. And had done it all himself. And for whatever reason you get handpicked to get mentored by the guy, but he doesn't just say shadow me, but stay quiet in the back of the room. He says, start with that. And they start handing more responsibilities, which is trust, right? He trusts that you're going to take this next step. By the end, he's staying in the car with clients who are on the line, real business, real money, real relationships. And he's sending you in saying, I trust that you will do this well. Just come back and report back to me. It was still his territory. It was still his responsibility. Yeah. He was training me to take over, but that happened the last day of the training. So yeah. the next Monday, the numbers were my responsibility. Was that was that his own idea or was this uh, something that he had I'm thought? pretty sure that was him. He was kind, smart. And by the end of the six weeks, he was sharing small, respectful, funny, and silly stories about mistakes he's made. So it really humanized and bonded. And I was going to say that, that touches on the power of vulnerability, right? So Brene Brown's very popular right now because she's saying we've grown up in a generation or several generations where vulnerability was hidden. You hide behind the shield, behind the armor. I've got it all together. Follow me because I'm I'm the answer guy. And that that model's falling apart, of course, and isn't really serving anybody. And here's a guy who who's got all the armor. He has it all together. And he says, hey, by the way, I made this mistake and I had this problem. And, and yeah, you've got flaws, but so do I. And then just imagine, you know, explain the bond that happens there. Well, it gets very deep and very wide. Yeah. Absolutely. So as he goes up the ladder, I'd send him a memo just to him. FYI, this appears to be an issue. And so he shared little things and medium things before the end of the six weeks training of mistakes he'd made when he was in business. And he also said, if the company screws up, tell them. Don't be one of those schools. Well, it's not my job. It's not my job. So right. eventually, in my last three years, our senior VP would call me saying, Michael, I'm told you'll tell me the truth. And I'm like, oh, geez. Right. Uh -oh. <laughs> I don't want to be the guy to get anybody in trouble. Right. And he's, he, he was very astute. He said, Michael, this isn't to get anybody in trouble, but there's a process problem right now. Why did we launch this and nothing's happened? He said, but I'm told you're at 90%. How is it that you out of 80 people said, well, it's not because I'm smarter, but I have stopped paying attention. I said, I have 17 binders. I have three feet of binders in front of me. Some of them with four inches thick of stuff I'm supposed to know and follow. He said, it's impossible. I, I covered, I read every page of training twice, but now I'm a little rusty. So when you send me a product and it sales and that's income for the company, that's my number one priority. I have a foot of paperwork for those 17 binders you're supposed to file. I said, we're becoming a bureaucracy. And I said, we're not lean, keen sales machines if I do all the paperwork. I look at that once a month. And if I can't do it in a day, it gets pushed to the next month. Oh. <laughs> I said, so if you looked at my binders, I, I, I might get a, a, a 6 out of 10 for maintenance a policy manuals. But if you look at my sales, I mean, I was sick once for four months off work, but I had a week's notice that I needed emergency cancer surgery. So I phoned my clients, the top 80%, sure. and I visited each one of them saying, so it looks like I'm going to be off work fighting cancer for six to 12 weeks. I need your commitment to keep safe and profitable. Not because it's my say-so, but it's your firm, your money, your budget. Yeah. With a lot of them, I stopped selling to them from the second visit saying, how do I help you make more profit? How do I help exactly. you with your staffing issues? So I was doing staff training. I was teaching staff cleaning skills. I, I was a janitor while I went to college. I got trained to hospital standards. And so I had this loyalty factor. And out of the, tw out of the top 
I think I had 19 out of the 21 that did exactly what I recommended. And so it really worked because they trusted me because I never had a sales agenda. I had a let's make you profits. Right. How do we do inventory? Increase sales. If we can do that, your money's working smarter and harder. It, it just it just works. Well, what I keep hearing in your conversation, in several conversations I've had over the last several months, is that the bottom line for business, for life, is relationships, right? And if you if you treat people the way they want to be treated, not just the way you want to be treated. So, you know, it used to be the golden rule is treat others the way that you would want them to treat you. And that's good. That's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's, that's a good place to start, but maybe yeah. I don't want to be treated like you like to treat you. Yeah, exactly. So the platinum, platinum rule, right? Treat yep. others the way they want to be treated. And that's what you're saying is this is called, you know, in, in the faith world, this is servant leadership and Jesus modeled that very well. Yes. And I'm, I'm seeing this pop up in, in every aspect from, from Tony Robbins to Simon Sinek to John Maxwell to all these gurus. They're all saying the same thing in different words. They're saying, if you put the people first, the profit will come. And that's exactly what my, my degree was at Pepperdine. It was organizational development. You put the people first, you make them succeed, you give them the tools and the support, and you will profit, and they'll have a great life. And then what you'll have is trust and loyalty and longevity and lower t- turnover and all those other great things. I had a client who was in the top. He was number 13 in Canada, and his profits and his sales were so high that he was, in a couple of cases, the only company in North America that a couple of U.S. producers sold to because he sold so much that he was outselling department stores with 20 locations across the whole country. On more than one occasion, some VP of sales from the U.S. would show up. And it happened from Canadian companies, too. So it's not a U.S. thing. It was it was they were VPs. And yeah. they'd come in and they look at his store. And it was a card and gift store, art supplies. He sold the top 100 paperbacks. He sold the top 25 cookbooks. He was a one-stop shop if you were in a hurry looking for a really decent mid-price gift. And his staff were impeccable. And I remember meeting him the first time. He said, we'll get along if you don't jam your company's agenda down my throat. You help me make more profits, we will do more business. So we shared numbers. And he said, what do you think? I said, well, you're doing 22 stock turns a year off your primary product from us. That's remarkable. But I would love to see if we can get you to 24. He said, now thou we're talking. He, He agreed to order four days a week instead of two days a week. But these... VPs would come in and look at his store and they would accuse him of lying. He must sure. be selling out the back door. It's yep. impossible. Yeah. And he said to me, and then he said to them, I've been in business for, I forget at the time, 23 years. My oldest, my longest serving employee is 22 years and my newest employee is 11 years. So my training costs for staff turnover are zero. Exactly. My cleaning, my cleaning staff costs are close to zero because my regular staff clean when we're slow. Yeah. So that means for a couple of months a year, this place gets cleaned thoroughly more than once a year. Awesome. My windows, I brought in the best window treatment designer I could find at a price that I could barely believe they could charge and get away with. But their references were enormous. My sales went up 12% when they started doing my windows. And they did that for a year. And they knew when they came in that I had a four-year plan, three or four-year plan. Then after the first year, she started talking to my three long-term employees saying, so I'm planning windows for these seasons. What do you think the color theme would be for this season? What's traditional? How do you mix it up? How do we do something different? And he said, by the fourth year, she came in and evaluated, and then she was done. And I paid her full deal for full full meal deal, even though she wasn't doing all the work in the third and fourth year. They always told me, you pay them too much. Again, my training costs are zero. Yes, this is the 80s. I pay them $6 an hour above average. But all of them, they've had attempted people to be poached. 
by other chains. Sure. And one of them left me after six years back in the day. And there was a downturn and they got laid off and they came back, not groveling, but I made a mistake. He said, I've never laid off anybody. When sales are awesome and sales are bad, we all just buckle down, work a couple extra hours. They get paid for it. But he said, I don't want to bring anybody on. This is a family. I pay them like he had three locations. I pay really well. I expect incredible performance. And the staff all said, he's really an awesome guy. I remember one of his staff said to me, so what are we going to do? Sales are slow. I brought in a new idea. She did everything. I went to the florist and I bought her an $80 bouquet of flowers and said, I can't thank you enough. Like, you not only listened, but you executed perfectly. He could have kept a lot more money, but he'd had a lot more heartburn, a lot more grief. The staff appreciated that he did small things that raised the bar. So he had two pair of slacks in his office in case he got dirty. He had three dress shirts. He always wore a fresh one after lunch because image is really important. I don't expect staff to have two sets of clothes here, but I'm in charge. Yeah. And so he ended up having six exclusive confidential clients. This was the 80s. There was no internet. You'd get a phone call. and it ha- I was there once when it happened. A phone call. Mrs. X, a famous Canadian or spouse of famous Canadian, placing an order. The butler showed up a few hours later and it was for $10,000. The first part of the order was already ready and they'd come back tomorrow. And they came back tomorrow with a check for the, with the invoice. And I said, good for you. He said, Michael, I worked hard to get to this level. And he said, those six celebrities, one of the most property, three places in the world, and they buy all their supplies for their events from me and they ship it because I'm quiet. Nobody, I'll go to my grave and they won't, nobody else will know who the customers are. Right back to trust. Again, that's a trust relation right there. Huge. Because it's her safety at stake because the butler came in and you follow them home, you know where they live and all those things. And her privacy. Yep. All the privacy. It was so remarkable. And when I was ill, the company made a mistake and sent me his, uh, uh, it's not a bonus. It was a rebate check. For every $100,000 you achieved in sales, we gave you a, a quarter percent back. Well, when you got to a certain level, the percentages got quite nice. Yeah, I'm sure. And so I was supposed to hand deliver the check and say thank you and you know go to buy him lunch. And I was in the hospital fighting cancer and having surgeries. So yeah. by mistake, it got curried to my house. My wife said, this came. I said, open it up. Open it up the privacy envelope. Yep. Okay. That's for him. Don't see me for two days. Just get him the check. So she phoned. Yes, I'll be in. Cause I said, don't give it to a staff. We don't want that loss. That's a, that's right. a, that's a payroll for the month. Well, she phoned me when she got home and she was excited and sad. She said, I got told, thank you very much. He shook my hand off and he sent me home with two $90 teddy bears for the kids. <laughs> awesome. And she said, I am to tell you, I am to never put family ahead of work. Just let the check get dusty. <laughs> Tell us about your, your diagnosis of cancer. It sounds like it was a, like a sudden and unexpected experience. Yes. What was the cancer and how did what happened? I had cancer in the di- lower intestine beside my liver. And so going into it with the diagnosis, I had an apple core structure that was growing inside the tumor that was ready to block off, which is really scary. Yeah. And after the surgery, three days later, the test toll came back and said out of the 13 lymph nodes they extracted cyst sets, I had cancer in three other locations. So cancer in four locations outside of the bowel is a scary thing. Yeah. How old were you? Did you have family at this time? Uh, 26, 27, married, no kids. But I just moved to a new area, more responsibilities, yeah. an extra zero on the sales responsibilities. Sure. Nothing like a nice challenge, right? But anyways, my doctor was on medical leave. So I had a doctor on a locum, which as I understand it means they've graduated 
they haven't got a place of employment yet in the hospital alignment. So they took over this for a, she took it over for six months or a year. Okay. Well, I got this fresh out of university, 29 year old doctor, Michael, I'm not going to be here in a year. So I don't care if I upset anybody's feelings or apple cart. I've been shopping around for you because your local hospital is full of very competent people, but I checked and they're still doing the 1950 surgery for your type of cancer. I've discovered that Dr. George P. Connick in Halifax left North America because we're behind. And he went to, I think it was Sweden, and he learned the newest surgery. He didn't have to do that. It was a six months, six months extra of learning. He just graduated after nine years. Who goes back to school after nine years? Anyways, all right. All right. Dr. George took good care of me. I'm all put back together. As I put it, I'm now a high mileage scratch and dent guy. But that one doctor trained me about advocacy. It's good to find out what the standards are, but what else is out there? So everybody's fine now, but my daughter had a brain tumor. The local hospital and the regional hospital, local hospital, we can't do the surgery. It's too complex and dangerous. Okay, good to know. Appreciate that. You're not going to try to do it. But the regional expert who did these surgeries, I do one a year. Oh, famous North American hospital, three and a half hours, two and a half hours down the highway. Oh, I do this nothing but. I'm a specialist. I only do these surgeries. I do four a week. So down the highway we went. Of course. So at learning to advocate politely. She had a tumor on this side as big as a male thumb, and then the scar tissue was as big as a male thumb. And she'd gone from petty mall to grand mall seizures in 90 days. My word. So she's now 38 post-secondary education. She's a music therapist on the east part of Canada. And she's got some other advanced education. And so, wow. What what does advocacy mean to you? You've mentioned this a couple of times. Uh, Advocacy is what is the preferred outcomes, respectful to all, safety for all, and then a process to get there, whether it's legal, physical, emotional, because I've advocated for people for mental health in the past when they weren't quite getting what they needed. Are you talking about advocacy for yourself? Are you talking about advocacy for others? Or are you talking about yourself, advocacy for others, advocacy for a family, for a community? I'm doing some low level advocacy about a local crosswalk as an example, and I'm not being listened to. This was a sleepy little crosswalk that got used a hundred times a day back then. Now it's used a couple thousand some days and people are driving around people in the middle of the crosswalk. Anyways. So advocacy is, is really important. I've advocated when I was a retail consultant. I advocated for my clients to head office when I thought we made mistakes. I advocated for head office with clients when they were being grouchy. I was going to say advocacy really is about, you know, wanting what's right and what's best for yourself or for others. And uh, I think a lot of us get hung up right there, right? Because we either think one, we don't deserve it or, or we're not going to stand up for ourselves or we're going to be rejected or we're going to face resistance or when we face resistance, then that's the end of the line. But you're talking about something much more powerful than that. You're talking about, you know what the end is and you know that it's right and just and true and moral and pure and what's the best outcome. And you're going to push through any roadblocks that come up because of the preferred outcome. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. I grew up with parents that negotiated for better things. When I was a teenager, I grew up in a rural area, but it was the second wealthiest place in North America per capita. And we had a real drug issue with the kids of high income. Hmm. And we had legal issues with them that were out of proportion. We're getting kids arrested for trafficking. They weren't trafficking. They bought a party platter, okay? They were going to have 50 friends over. Right. So my mother said to my father, and there was a big meeting in the community, these kids need something to do. We live in a one-horse town. One bus out in the morning on Friday, Monday to Friday and one bus home. Nothing to do on the weekends. 
I got one of the coveted less than 25 part-time jobs in town at the local hardware store. So they opened up a drop-in center. Another church took on the entertainment piece. Once Saturday night a month, they brought in a local music group on the way up. So, yeah, so negotiations and, and collaboration to push things forward for better quality experiences and outcomes, that's to me, is all part of being resilient. So what, what is it then inside of us? Uh, how do we get past our own self, our own fears, our own self-worth or whatever that is to become an advocate because you've had to do this for yourself and you've had to do it for your daughter. And now you're doing it for organizations and communities. What is it in you? What, how do you, how do people get from where they're stuck to where you are? Part of it, you have to reflect and say, how do I currently define myself? So when I taught career search to long-term unemployed, some of them have been out of work for 10 years. How, if there was a picture in a dictionary, a private dictionary, only you can see your dictionary. There's a picture of you, but there's words, phrases, paragraphs, whole chapters, and there's videos, snippets, audios, and there's three basic things in there. They fall into three categories. Really negative, they're a lie. Mixed message, part lie, part truth. And really positive, part lie, part truth. you got to do cleaning up. And all the ones that are untrue, throw them away. And so it's serious self-reflection. So in grade one, Miss Patton told my parents by letter that Michael has some very incredible skills in the classroom and especially in the playground. Michael, unfortunately, seems to have a motor control issue for printing. Very true. It appears that I'm part of the 1% where this doesn't come to here very well. Hmm. I took piano lessons for eight years. That didn't help it. I took hmm. keyboarding, made it easier to communicate with others, but that didn't help it. But anyways, she framed it in the best possible way, that I was not defective. The school yeah. system thought it was important. She didn't think it was important. So just do your best, Michael. Because I think you have exceptional skills in other areas. And I lived on that for years. Totally. Absolutely. Seven years to get through four years of high school because I don't spell well as part of the writing issue. Part of this yeah. 1% that has this brain issue. But fortunately, what nature takes away in one way, the brain injury, we don't know, it gives back in other ways. So I have, I'm told, above average linguistic skills. So I can, I can pontificate splendiferously as the occasion <laughs> requires. <laughs> Advocating for self, advocating for others, being resilient, looking at how do you define yourself is a big piece of are you, why are you worthy? Yeah. When I'm at my best, I can help others be at my best. So that's the least reason to do it. Oh, when I'm at my best, I'm a better parent and I can keep my kids safer, more productive and help them learn how to be more successful in life in different categories. And I'm proud to say my oldest had gone, has gone on, gone on and get the labor laws in Canada changed. Wow. It turns out as she was working towards getting a trade, our labor laws didn't allow pregnant women early maternity leave, but she was working as a boat welder and her doctor found out when she was pregnant, the doctor said, oh, you're done. You can't work anymore. Oh, well, my maternity benefits don't kick in for like three more months. So she did what makes me proud. She went to her federal rep government representative who went to his cabinet within a year. It was changed. Women who work in dangerous industries that get pregnant can get their maternity leave early. Doesn't cost the pet government another or the citizens or companies a penny extra. Just it needed to be changed. So she changed it. It's like, yes, that's my girl. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Her great grandfather, my grandfather, helped start a political party. He lost an eyeball in the workplace and found out he had no rights. But the eyeball got lost because somebody didn't follow safety protocols, took a guard off a machine to increase productivity. Life either happens to you 
or life happens for you. And what you believe about those two phrases changes everything. Do you agree or disagree? I agree. Things will happen despite best efforts. I didn't ask for cancer, but my doctor, my GP, she made things happen for me that changed my life. Because a 1950 surgery would have been workable, but it would have meant I would have needed a surgery every five to seven years to keep me in shape. That was remarkable. And somebody said later, but Michael, that's what you do in business. You attracted her to be that way for you. If you'd have been one of those Eeyores, it's okay. I'll stay on this side of the of the harbor in Halifax because it saves me 40 minutes. And I was like, no, what's in Montreal? What's in Halifax? What's in Boston? What's in Toronto? Let, let's do this. Let's gear up. And I found Absolutely. out later, I, I passed a psychological test for exactly the issue you mentioned. Because hmm. the doctors and my and one of the nurses asked me the same set of questions, just with slightly different language. And at first I was like, oh, this is interesting. They wanted to know if I could go the distance. Well, this is so rich. I can't wait to talk more, more with you about this. And what I did hear you saying in more than one ways is that through your grandparents, your parents, through the special teachers that saw you not as a limitation, but as a just a different way that people are wired. Uh, and the fact that this one mentor took you under his wing and gave you the trust and all the skills. Um, I think there's something so important about this advocacy piece because you need to advocate for yourself, of course. And, you, and as you advocate for others, then they get the power to advocate for themselves as well. And it's it just, grows. It grows. And it grows and it grows and it grows. And you have to learn to advocate for yourself inside yourself. Because yes. when you're tired and weary, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to bother. Right. Wait yeah. a minute. And you just hinted at just briefly a couple times at the law of attraction, right? That because yes. you are positive, because you believed it could happen, because you were willing to look for it and search for it and push for it, then those are the type of people and experts that were drawn to you as well. And, and you, know, you stayed respectful. Stayed respectful, right? Even with the grouchy lady a few departments over, who ended up being a great friend. In our last 60 seconds, Michael, tell people how can they find you? How can they find what you do? Give, give us uh, the connection. If you're in Facebook, go to Resiliency for Life group and apply. And the reason we apply is it helps keep the spam down to close to zero. Yes. It also means we, we keep the people that are nasty out of the group. And there right. we share lessons and skills and beliefs on how to be more resilient so we can thrive with better quality experiences and better outcomes. And also just resiliencyforlife.com. All right. So for, for Mojo Studios, this is Joe McCarthy. This is Michael H. Ballard of Resiliency for Life. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to continuing it. Thank you. For, for all of you out there, just Remember that the biggest obstacle is between your ears. Don't don't let yourself hold yourself back and find an advocate who will help push you through as well. God bless you all. Have a fantastic week. If this episode was beneficial to you, be sure to pay it forward, sharing it with others who may need a boost as well. Until next time, dream big, start small, act now. Thank you for tuning in. 